This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. And we are continuing in our 10-part series, How Did We Get Here? Everybody recognizes that our nation is much different than it used to be, and it feels like every year it's much different than it was a year ago. It just seems like things are changing at rapid pace. And so we wanted to do a podcast series that goes back and tracks how we got to where we are. And we've said this before, but in the research process, this has been very eye-opening and and shocking at points. Uh, to, we've talked about in our first episode, we looked at how the nation's education system was put together, how it had extremely Christian roots, the universities, the schools, the townships, the reasoning behind why education and literacy programs existed early on. In the second episode, we talked about the American foundations, the philosophers like Locke and Montesquieu and the founders' reliance on the Bible to give us a system of government that recognized the nature of man, but also the, you know, and the dangers of big government that goes with that, but also that our reliance, our liberties came from God. That was kind of a central pillar of all of America's institutions. Then in the last episode, we looked at the French Revolution and and kind of what happens when a nation decides that they're going to try to achieve liberty and and things like equality and, and all of those very good things, but without God as the foundation of all that stuff. And we saw three and a half million deaths and a lot of misery that came out of that. And so now we're switching back over to America, and today there's there's not a lot of nefarious stuff today, but it's really important to understand as America began to, to really want to further the agenda of education with the most noble of intentions, one of the things they did was they allowed that Leviathan, the government, to creep out of its bonds and start grabbing hold of parts of our education system, which to train up kids to read, to give people broad education across the country, the most incredible and noble of motives. But we're going to see today that a network, a grid was laid over top of America with the public education system that is going to be exploited later on. But it's important to understand how we went from where we were at the founding, where, you know, it was churches and it was neighborhoods and and communities that came together to run education to where now it's going to shift to where it's a a bigger government that's far away that begins to have control over education in America. Yeah, this is another one of those great American experiments that had really great intentions. Completely, which which is how it seems like all of them start. Yeah, and this is one where like, oh, we want everyone to be educated. We're a diverse nation, and there's hundreds of millions of people, and it's just one of those things that's like, oh, got a little bit too out of hand. Yeah, I mean, mean, you could see at the beginning just, I mean, you have all of these immigrants that are coming from all nations, you know, where the great melting pot, and part of the reason why they wanted what's going to be called a common school movement 
is to assimilate these people and to teach them here's what American values are. And, and the initial motives are, is definitely not to walk away from Christianity, as we'll see. It's to say, hey, here's how we do things in America. We're going to teach you to read. We're going to teach you to write. But also, if you're coming into our institutions, we want to assimilate you into the system so that we are one people and we're going to move forward. So those are kind of some of the motives that you'll see in, in what's to come. But to start us, you know, that John Quincy Adams wrote, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. And if, if you have listened to a podcast, you, you've heard that from all the founders. You heard that from so many of the most influential people at the beginning of the nation. And so that is continuing. John Quincy Adams is the sixth president in, in 1825. So we're, we're well into the 1800s. And that attitude is still the prevailing attitude in America. And so as you're going to see, this is on the verge of when we start bringing in the, the government-run education that we find today. So we're going to start a little bit backwards because we're going to look at universities and we're going to look at primary and secondary schools, but we're going to start with one that happens a little bit later, and it's it comes through the Public Land Grant Act. And so this is where you really get just a flood of public universities, you know, that are going to be taxpayer-funded by states. And this is where you start to see in the middle of the 1800s, actually this law is going to be passed in 1862, we'll see. But this is where you have public universities that come in. And so this, and this, they're not going to be the first public universities. In fact, if you remember... We said in the last episode that 106 of the first 108 universities founded in America had affiliations with Christianity, either through church or whatnot. But the oldest publicly funded university, you do you know who it is? I just read it, so that'd be cheating. Okay, you're cheating. So the oldest publicly funded university is the University of Georgia. Huh, didn't see that coming, so, though. As a gator, like, all right, I'm, bulldogs, they're, they're all right. But they were founded... But in 1785, four years you know, before the ratification of the Constitution by a guy named Abraham Baldwin, and he was a minister and he was a signer of the Constitution, this, this, uh, this will probably blow the minds of any you know, UGA fans or University of Georgia graduates, but this was in their founding charter. Listen to the words. It should therefore be among the first objects of those who wish well to the national prosperity to encourage and support the principles of religion and morality. Remember all those quotes we read? Religion and morality. And early to place the youth under the forming hand of society that by instruction they may be molded to the love of virtue and good order. So it's recognizing that you're under the forming hand of society. So this is founded to really promote religion. And so this ethic continues. You know, we read the, the quote from John Quincy Adams that would be in the you know mid-20s, late-20s. But here, listen to what the U.S. House of Representatives declares in, in 1854. The Judiciary Committee does a study on who we are as a nation. What, are, what is our government? And listen to what they say. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment, hear that, universal sentiment, 
was that Christianity should be encouraged. It must be considered as the foundation on which the whole structure rests. You get rid of that, the whole nation falls. That's what they're saying. So then after that, that committee refers this report to Congress and the entire U.S. Congress says, yeah, let's adopt a resolution declaring our identity as a nation. So they say the great, vital, and conservative, meaning it will keep us from rotting away, the great, vital, and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people and the pure doctrines of divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This feels like a different universe. How did we lose this? And so at this point in American history, most of the public universities were still religious in nature uh, in the 1850s. So this is this is a favorite little historical fact because I am a graduate of the University of Florida. Boo. Will is a graduate of Florida State University. Go Boo. And I had no idea about this until I was researching this. But in the 1850s, the Florida legislature made plans to have two higher education facilities in Florida. And so what they did is they said, we want one that's going to be on the east side of the Suwannee River, and we want one that's going to be on the west side of the Suwannee River. And so the University of Florida, my alma mater, traces its origins back to this. And you know what they called that school when it was first founded? No idea. East Florida Seminary. Huh. Do you know what they called Florida State at the time of its founding? Take a guess. West Florida Seminary. West Florida Seminary. And when, the, so I'm looking through the old documents of East Florida Seminary, which is University of Florida. This is my alma mater, you know, and, and they're, they're contending in the founding documents. Obs, this the direct quote, observation and experience have taught that an institution of learning cannot be sustained unless controlled by some denomination. So it was unthinkable in the 1850s that an institution of learning should be controlled by government. There has to be some denomination, some church, because Christianity was so infused in education that it has to be led by some denomination. So they approached the Methodist Episcopalians to, to help run that. And so just wild to me that, and I never heard that, you know, as a proud Gator, you know, their four years. Yeah, they don't tell you that in the uh, tour. No, definitely. Hey, this used to be a seminary. But you're like, what? Yeah, it definitely didn't feel like a seminary when I was there. <laughs> in my years there, like I was not living the seminary life, I can tell you that. So all of that began to change. In 1862, right in the middle of the Civil War, the U.S. Congress passes the Morrill Act. And so what this does is it goes to every state that's loyal to the Union, and they say, hey, if you're willing to build a university on in your state will give you 30,000 acres of, of federal land to do it. And that's like, is that a lot? That's a ton. Okay. A 30,000 30, acres is a ton of land. This is a huge incentive. So like the, our church, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with Rio and the school, everything we own is three and a half acres. Oh, so, so multiply that by 10,000 of these, <laughs> you know, we're talking about a lot of land. And so, any state that wanted to step up to the plate that would be loyal to the union. Remember this is in the civil war. So it's like, Hey, if you're loyal to us, you get 30,000 acres of federal land. It's an incentive, right? To be loyal to them. So a lot of States take, take the bait. And there's since that offer, there've been 112 land grant universities around the nation. 105 of them are public. Seven of them are private. You know, University of Florida would be one. I mean, you you saw these that were just rampant in all the states. And so 
what they came out, the reason behind them in the act, if you go back and read the old legislation, they said that the whole purpose was to offer, quote, a practical education of the industrial classes in the several pursuits and professions in life. And so then as examples, they said, we want to train people up in military tactics. We want them to learn agriculture. We want them to learn the mechanic arts. And so like when you think of college today, very different animal. Yeah. So, I mean, it started like, okay, we're training up pastors. And then when they went public, it's like, okay, we want to build an industrial class of people who have skills, you know, who can go build things and fix things and feed people and do all that. And universities have since, you know, gone way off of that. I'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah, leave that there. Yeah, we'll leave that there. And so, as always, no gift from the government comes without some sort of strings attached. And so what they required was that every year, all those land-grant institutions are going to have to file a report with the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, and they would send out all their new programs and everything else to all the other schools to collaborate and to share. And so that doesn't, that, you know, that's not a big deal. Yeah, it seems okay. That seems totally reasonable. And so with the best of intentions, America was beginning to let the Leviathan out of its cage a little bit. But, you know, back then, the, the general sentiment was universally agreed upon. Like, we believe in the gospel. We believe in the truths and the morals of the scriptures. So it it didn't seem dangerous back then to let the Leviathan, you know, take a little control over the institution of education. So that's happening in 1862. That's when that comes back. Now, back up and you go a little bit less than two decades before that. You have a guy named Horace Mann. Have you ever heard of Horace Mann? Not until this. All right. So if you are an education major and you went through school, you've heard of this guy. The, he's considered the father of the of the common school movement or, you know, probably a better way for people to understand that now is that it's public school movement. And so in 1843, this guy is, you know, the Massachusetts Secretary of Education, and he decides, you know what, we need to find a model for education that's going to be really good for the country. And so what does he do? He goes overseas and he takes a tour of European countries and he's, you know, I'll go to England and check them out. And I'll go to the French and check them out. You know, now that the fires have settled down in (laughs) France and bodies are gone. (laughs) Yeah. They, they buried the bodies. Then he goes to Prussia and he's like obsessed with Prussian education system. So, you know, they, that was where the government controlled education the government required compulsory attendance in the government-run schools. Uh, you know, it was top-down from elementary to the university level in Prussia. The government ran the show. And so man comes home, and he's like, man, he goes to the Massachusetts Board of Education, and he's like, we need to adopt the Prussian model. It's amazing. Well, the problem is Prussia at the time. Is Does a, Prussia still exist? No, it's gone. Okay. It's basically like Germany. Okay, that's good to know. Some, some areas in that region. So... Central Europe. And so you have you have German, you know, all of these people. It's it's oppressive over there. Everybody's like, wait a minute, they're like a little bit like they're monarchical. They have a huge government structure. They're they're oppressive toward anybody who disagrees with them. And so man is like, yeah, but that you know, that doesn't matter. We, you know, we're different over here. Well, we can take it. And so he writes in this report that he gives, he says, among the nations of Europe, Prussia has long enjoyed the most distinguished reputation for the excellence of its schools. In reviews and speeches and tracts and even the graver works devoted to the cause of education, its schools have been exhibited as models for the imitation of the rest of Christendom. 
And so he's like, man, they're on the cutting edge bringing the kingdom of God to Europe. Their, their schools are amazing. They're the, everybody praises them. We need to do that. And so the, the problem is, is you have a lot of people in, in that period that are super distrustful of government. Like we could really use a little bit more of that, honestly. So he, he gives them a promise because they're worried, like, is this going to change the nature of schools? And he says, are you kidding me? Like the, the Prussians, they include so much scripture and they include so many teachings about Christianity. He writes this in his report. So I want you to hear this and hear the irony of this, that here you have somebody who's advocating for compulsory public schools. And he gives this reasoning. Listen to this quote. Nothing receives more attention in the Prussian schools than the Bible. We should have, in other words, like hear that. We should have public schools because they really focus on the Bible. <laughs> That's how we got the common school movement, right? That's how it was sold. It's taken up and studied early and systematically, he said. The great events recorded in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, especially those sublime views of of duty and morality, which are brought to light in the gospel. These are the topics of daily and earnest inculcation in every school. How do you, how do you feel about that? These quotes almost seem fake. If I didn't trust you <laughs> and I didn't trust your research ability, I would think these are all made up because they're so straightforward about the Bible for real. And it feel like I said, it feels like it's from another universe. And honestly, like I had to go to firsthand sources. So like when I first read this, I had the same reaction as you yeah, did. Like, no, where it's like, I come on, like this feels like, so, and there are, by the way, some quotes that are misattributed when you go searching, you got to be careful. You, so going and looking at literally the, the document that he gave to them, you know, the old typeface, everything else I'm reading these words from that document. And it's like, holy cow, wow. So Horace Mann assures the board that, you know, they, they could repu replicate precious Bible teaching, but he did not want it to be like denominations and sectarian. We could just do general Christianity and we'll be fine. You know, it's not going to be Catholic. It's not going to be Episcopalian. It's not going to be Baptist or Presbyterian. It's going to be just straight up general teachings from the Bible. Okay, that sounds great. However, in those days, Americans start like they're they're coming up on man and they're like you can't do this you can't do this if you allow government into anything politicians are going to try to exploit the schools to to like push forward their agendas this is not safe you're going to have government that reaches in like it always does and it's going to use it to like oppress ideas for the sake of power and so he he admits like the whole bunch of dissenters are coming up to him and he says you know that they did not want to allow any interference on the part of government in respect to public education. Like he, he throws that into the document, but then he says this, like, he's like, but that won't be the case in America. He says, quote, if Prussia can pervert the benign influences of education to support of arbitrary power, we can surely employ them for the support and perpetuation of Republican institutions. So let me just translate what he said there. If they can, pervert education to the support of tyranny and power and monarchy, of course we'll be able to support, you know, teach kids, and they'll support and perpetuate our institutions. They're not going to wreck and undermine our institutions because our institutions are so much better. He's naive, but it's a nice thought. <laughs> very, very, very naive. And so, like, I mean, if you, the common school movement, and I was thinking, like, how would I, how would I have changed this? Like, 
out of this, they needed to recognize like government, there needs to be real restrictions on the power of government to shape and mold indoctrination. Because you allow government into anything throughout all of history, and you're going to find they immediately start indoctrinating. Because everyone understands if you gain the classroom in one generation, you get the political power in the next one. And government can't resist it, right? And so it was naive to imagine, oh, yeah, they're just they're going to be great. You know, they're just going to continue as is and celebrate everything that always has been. Like, that's just naive. And so Massachusetts adopts these policies. Then Horace Mann starts taking his show on the road, going to all these other states. So by the end of the 40s, every single state had followed suit. Getting stuff done. He's He's super influential. That's why he's called the father of the common school movement. So... In the 1850s, Massachusetts is like, you know what? Like, we should force parents to send their kids to school. They have to go get an education somewhere. So they passed the first compulsory attendance law. Now, all the other states started following. By 1918, every single state in the nation is going to have compulsory attendance laws in place. You must go get an education. And I'm trying to think, like, I'm, I'm good with that. Like, you know, I don't like being told what to do, but I think that's... That's a, a good civic requirement so that we have an educated populace. Like, I can understand that. What do you think? Yeah, like basic education everyone should have. Yeah. And so this just extends to, like, the primary levels. So we're, it's basically literacy. Okay. So we're not even getting into secondary and higher education at this point. So, so now this is where you have this drift that starts beginning towards secularism. So they're building this platform from 1840 to 1860. Now, our next two episodes are going to be about philosophic ideas that are brand new, more or less, that come in and start corrupting education that happen at the end of the 1850s. And so Horace Mann couldn't have foreseen this. Uh, The public universities and all of the ideas, like they weren't guarded against what was coming. But here's another twist that enabled all of this to come about. So between 1830 and 1860, you had America, which was overwhelmingly Protestant, right? That had this flood of Irish Catholics. You know, my my family is overwhelmingly Irish, despite my German last name. And, you know, all my ancestors are Catholics. They would have been some of the people who came over here. And so the number of Catholics in the nation swelled from 500,000 to 3 million and they're looking at the public schools and they're like, well, they're teaching general Christianity and they're using Protestant Bibles. We're going to create our own because Catholics have always had their own schools and all the other nations that they're coming from. And so they start building these parochial schools. But here's the deal. Now that we have a common school movement, it's only fair that they be reimbursed for their schools. And so now government funds are not only going to support the Protestant schools, which are the public schools. But they're now going to pay for the Catholic schools, and you have a lot of people who are not fans of Catholicism. They're like, I don't want my tax dollars going to pay for Catholic schools. And so you have the first Blaine Amendment that comes about in the 1870s, and what it says basically, I'm not going to read the whole law, but it just says no money that's raised by taxation for the support of public schools can end up in the control of any religion. And so, like, if you look at the state of Florida where they give, you know, vouchers, they give the money to the parents that then are allowed to go shop around and choose a Christian school, but the state cannot give money to a Christian denomination directly is the idea. 
And so th- that started happening. 37 states around the country started having Blaine amendments. But it's the first time where you started saying, seeing, you know, maybe tax dollars and, and religious education, we're going to start pulling this back. Mm. Mild. And it's totally understandable. Like, again, if Horace Mann came and sold me and he was like, we need public schools, I'd be like, I, I totally get it. You know, maybe maybe put some protections on it, but I I think that's a noble idea. And the public land grants, I'm all on board. And and when you get to this, the Blaine Amendments, it's like, okay, I understand that. Like, I don't want my tax dollars going to support, you know, Hindu temples or Muslim places. Like, so I get it, right? But what it did is it started introducing a little bit of secularism mm. into the nation. It shows you how much influence one person can have. It really does. It's kind of wild. Even in all of these, like there's just a couple of main characters throughout all of this. And you're like, whoa. So one of the things that like you're talking about, one of the things that has blown me away is all of the things that we're talking about. They come from the ideas of a pen, you know, like one person, John Locke, radical, you know, massively influential Rousseau, massively influential Horace Mann, massively influential the next couple of episodes we're going to find individuals massive like that had that changed the course of history dramatically and it's always one person who comes up with an idea and then the mob comes behind and grabs hold of that idea and radically changes the culture and so this is this is what i'm getting at how do you win this battle it's got to be in the realm of ideas and the church is asleep on that front. Mm. And that's not to blow the ending of this series. Spoiler. But we have got to get better at speaking into these debates, into these conversations in ways that are winsome, that just have the truth behind them. Because the reality is we have truth on our side, but we have kind of disarmed and allowed, the, you know, the if you remember the, the, the train of, of Machiavelli versus Luther, you know, the Machiavellian train is just, it's run us over. It's a bullet train. It has run us over. And so anyway, back to the this public school movement. So all these changes, best of intentions, but by mandating this common education for everybody, it also began to change the face of education. So in the late 1800s, the numbers of private schools started getting eclipsed by the number of public schools. The, the balance begins to shift. But I want you to think like, if okay, if you come and you say, okay, we're going to do common education for everybody so that everybody knows how to have these basic skills, what's the downside of that? No specialization? Yeah, there's no specialization. So, I mean, it used to be if you had a really exceptionally bright kid, well, you chase that and give him the best education over here. And if you had someone over here who is showing, you know, that that he's really good at farming or something, okay, well, let's get him over here in these categories where he's going to learn farming. But when you have a one-size-fits-all kind of an education model, you're teaching with the goal of basic proficiency. Like, let's just make them basically competent in these areas And then you lose your superstars. And here's the next dangerous thought that nobody ever thinks about. If we're teaching people basic to to the point of basic competency, well, then that means you lose a little bit of excellency, right? You lose excellence to, to, because you're only teaching the next generation competency. So then who's teaching the next generation? Those that have only been trained to basic competency. And so with every year, every generation, you get a law of diminishing returns to where every generation in reality is getting dumber and dumber. Do you see how that works? Yeah. Go back and try to take an exam or a test 
from the eighth grade in the early 1900s. And you're like, holy cow, <laughs> Like these, these kids were pretty incredible. Versus now, it's like, spell your name. Hooray, Jimmy. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a way different. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a stretch and probably unfair. But it's, it's happening. We're getting the law of diminishing returns in our education system. So gone are the days when the Nebraskan students could learn about farming and the Detroit students could learn about auto mechanics and the West Virginian students could learn about coal mining or even arts or dancers or anything like that. Like everything is being trained up. So, and, and every kid is supposed to go to college now, right? Like that's the path of the successful life. And we've, we've done away with ideas like apprenticeships or trade schools or, you know, there's, and for the public education universe, there's no incentive to offer such programs because, you know, you can't monitor it. How do you monitor a, an apprenticeship? Or, or trade school, like you say, oh, he's a really good mechanic. He can rebuild an engine in 10 seconds, or like whatever. And all the funding for the districts are now tied to their scores on what? Standardized testing. And so hear that, standardized. Everything is pointing toward this base, bottom level proficiency. And the reality is now our schools can't even meet that. Dark. And even for private schools and private universities and seminaries, like this idea of this top-down education model is still, it influences even the private ones because now all of them have to answer to accrediting agencies. Mm. Well, guess where the accrediting agencies get all their standards? They have to meet with the states because all those kids from private schools have to go to colleges and most of them are going to go to state universities so the states tell the private institutions, here are your standards, and the standards begin to reflect exactly what's in the states. And so this top-down level, this blanket, has massive control, massive control over the training up of the next generation. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, the philosophic direction of the schools and the moral direction of the schools and the secular direction of the schools and future episodes. But let's just pause for a moment and say on, on the academic front, okay, government now controls the overwhelming majority of America's education, taking all of the, the social and cultural elements out of this discussion. How are we doing just in terms of academics? How would you guess? Not good <laughs> or not better. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe a better way to say that, but it's it's been disastrous. So, and and a lot of people like the answer is, well, we don't spend enough. You know, we're we're not spending. Let me just give you some statistics on how much we spend versus other nations in the world. So, according to and this is government sources, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, the United States in 2018 spent fourteen thousand four hundred dollars on elementary and secondary education per pupil. Wow. That's 34% higher than the average in, in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. So other advanced first world nations that are in this organization, we spend 34% more on education per pupil than them, um, which their average is 10,800. So we spend significantly more. At the post-secondary level, so we're talking about colleges now, the United States, this blows me away, the United States spends $35,100 per full-time equivalency student. So that's double 
the average of all those other nations. We spend more money per pupil than every nation on earth besides this tiny little European country called Luxembourg. Have you ever heard of it? Really tiny. Has rich, rich, right? Rich, rich. They got less than a million people. So, and they're it's a it's a wealthy country. So that that it shouldn't even count. They should be like a county of one of those other <laughs> bigger countries. Um, but so since 1960, get this: since 1960, even when you adjust for inflation, K to 12 education spending per student has increased by 350 percent. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. So like we're spending more and more and more. So our education standards should be blowing the doors off of 1960, right? Should. Wrong. Like it's getting worse. Like we can't figure this out, but like our teachers are, you take those same nations. We're spending all this money. Our teachers are 12th in their starting salaries. So it's not like we're paying educators and getting the, you know, like, oh, well, let's increase the talent pool. It's going to bureaucracy and, te- you know, all these, you know, far off lands that are coming up with these standards in D.C. or state capitals. And so much of this money is getting squandered and it's not reaching down to the teachers or to the students. And so according to the U.S. Census, here's the only good news that I'm going to share for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> According to the U.S. Census, we currently have the highest graduation rate in U.S. history, right? Like, okay, that, that should have Bravo. some applause and some cheers. That's great news. But what does a graduation mean? If the education system is now getting so dumbed down, like, so if it's, if we're having better graduations, we should have a smarter populace, right? We should be, we should, we should have better skills. We should have, you know, our math and science and history and civics and geography. We should be kicking butt because we got the highest graduation rate. But the reality is an American diploma doesn't mean much at all these days because our education system is falling so far and fast. So this study by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So this is a, a group of 34 countries that are, you know, on the first world side of things. They did a study and it was like, okay, how does America do in math? And so Peggy Carr, who's the national, she's the acting commissioner for the National Center for Education Statistics, came out and said, Mathematics remains the subject that U.S. fares worst in comparatively. And our students continue to score score below the average of other member nations. So we spend the most, we're below average in math. Of particular concern is that we also have a higher percentage of students who score in the lowest performance level. So among those that are the, the worst performing, we're the lowest among them. And compared to those that are on the higher end, like we have a lower percentage of top math performers. So we don't have any many in the excellent category, and we got a ton in the bottom. So the U.S. average score in math was 20 points below the international average, and it was 12 points below what the U.S. average was in 2012. So we're, we're declining. The, U, the average U.S. student is almost a full year behind the average international student in math. We are three years behind the average student in Singapore. So according to the National Assessment of Education Progress, they said only 24% of 13-year-old students were taking algebra in 2022-2023, which is like, you know, that's where they probably should be. And that number is down from 34%. So it went from 34% to 24% in a decade. So like our kids are, are falling off the table in math. So this is supposed to be, you know, STEM, 
right? The STEM curriculum. We're supposed to be kicking butt in this. Well, how do we fare in science? The U.S. ranks below the international average in science. Of the 34 countries, we ranked 20th. Another study that was done by the University of Washington looked at 71 nations, and they found that the U.S. ranked 38th in math and 24th in science. So we're no, we're not leading the world anymore, and it's and it's not even close. And so the 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 chair of the National Assessment of Education Progress, after looking at all of our scores, just had this this quote where she said, "U.S. students are struggling across the board." She should be fired. I don't a know. A lot of Beverly people should is. be fired. Like I'm telling you, like our schools, and that's the thing, public schools. You can't fire bad teachers. I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into this conversation. I don't even want to get down that road, but they're broken. It's a broken system. So let's go to literacy. You know, your wife's an English teacher. This is this is should be near and dear to her heart. According to the U.S. Department of Education, 54% of U.S. adults, the majority from 16 to 74 years old, that's 130 million people in our country, lack proficiency in literacy reading below the equivalent of a sixth grade level. That means that the majority of adults in America read at an elementary level. That's crazy. Isn't it? They should stop producing these stats. It's they're depressing. They're depressing. And so only 29% of eighth grade public school students are performing at the proficient level at reading. So remember common school, that means we're just, we're just going to aim for proficiency. We're going to aim to make everybody competent, right? 29% 29% are reaching proficiency. So we're even failing at competence. So that's like, let's jump to the next category, civics. You know, you can't get better. <laughs> so Jefferson once said, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. And so like, and, and I'll tell you, given how much energy everybody devotes to politics and how angry we are with everything in the world and everything on the political front, You'd think that we'd be really good at civics. We should know how the government works because we get really mad at the opposing parties, right? So in, in 2022, 22% of students were proficient in civics. That's that's wild. Only 26% of Americans can name the three branches of government. 24% of college graduates know that the First Amendment bars Congress from establishing a religion. It's a First Amendment. have no idea how many justices serve on the Supreme Court. Like every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy, it feels like people are on the verge of like lunacy and rioting. 57% don't even know how many justices serve on the court. And so Princeton, this this one was the the coup de grace and all of the, the research on this. Princeton did a study and found that only a third of Americans, 36%, can actually pass a multiple choice test consisting of questions taken from the U.S. citizenship test. And so these immigrants that are coming into America that have to pass this test in order to become a citizen, a third of Americans can pass that test. Like we're that bad at civics. And how about history? I I don't want to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, right? All right, well... Only 13% of students scored proficient in history. 13%. That's one in eight, roughly. 60% of students couldn't name the countries that the United States fought against in World War II. 24% knew why the colonists fought against the British in the Revolutionary War. 24% 
could accurately describe Benjamin Franklin as one of the nation's founders. In fact, more more people, 37%, thought that he invented the light bulb, which, by the way, is Thomas Edison, if you if you stumbled on that. In a survey of 1,000 people, this one just made me laugh, in a survey of 1,000 people, more than 20 people thought that the Cold War was a war on climate change. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, this is like man-on-the-street stuff. A National Geographic study found that nearly two-thirds of Americans, ages 18 to 24, were unable to identify the United Kingdom on a world map. That's an easy one. Like, it's an island. Like, come on. We're talking about islands there. Like, let's, let's get with it. And most young Americans were unable to identify the state of Ohio on a map. Like, so history, geography, math, science, I mean, you, literacy, you go down the list and we're falling apart. You look at our ACT scores. They've been tumbling in every single category. Six consecutive years just falling. Reading, math, English, science. It's all falling apart. And this isn't new. Like, this has been going on for decades. Terrell Bell, who was the former Secretary of Education in the 1890s, had a quote that I just, I love. 1980s. What did I say? 1890s. See, I'm there. (laughs) My brain is totally in that century. But in the the 1980s, U.S. Secretary of Education says this. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. We have, in effect, been committing an act of unthinking, unilateral educational disarmament. What a quote. Wow. Isn't he right? Sure seems to be. I mean, we're, we, are, we can't even reach proficiency in all these categories. Not even half of our students are coming out of schools, even proficient, not to mention excellent. And so beyond the failure to achieve basic proficiency, the government has forsaken the promises of man. So when he first started the common school movement, he assured the government would never come in and take over education to indoctrinate students. The the government would never forsake our founding principles and the Christian ideals of who we are as a nation. That's laughable now. I mean, the public schools are so hostile to the faith that you know it's it's omitted you're not allowed to talk about it so many americans now see that indoctrination is happening in the schools and and i'm one of them that would say i i think that you know i was a public school graduate you know and i i feel like i i enjoyed my time in pub vero beach high school shout out right but i would no longer send my children to a public school with the way that things are going in this country and i'm not alone and this is another crisis is whether it's warranted or not, and you can you can be you know somebody who says you know no the public schools are great we love them we need to support them I think Sam is way off here right and that's fine, but Gallup has found that only twenty eight percent of Americans have confidence in the public school system. Do you know what like that is a crisis? Yeah, that's low. So you've got a nation sending its kids into a school that it has no faith in. That's a problem. Public school enrollment has declined now for three consecutive years. That, that's never happened before. People are pulling their kids out. You know, you, going into COVID, enrollment was declining. After COVID, it's exploding. And part of that is because people started having to pay attention to what their kids were learning on Zoom calls and everything else. And so, and the universities aren't faring any better. So here, look, get this. The National Student Clearinghouse showed that undergraduate enrollment at colleges, this, this really surprised me, 
Undergraduate enrollment at colleges was down two and a half million students from 2012 to the beginning of COVID. And since COVID, that number's declined by another million students. So undergraduate enrollment's fallen by three and a half million kids since 2012. And if you ask people, what's the reason for that? You get answers like indoctrination. Hmm. They are, they're so far skewed that I don't want to go there. Or I don't think that a college education is now worth the expense. That's probably the more common one. Like the education that they're producing, you know, I'd rather just go to a trade school, get a job. Like what's the point of taking in all that debt for an education that really doesn't help that much? That sentiment is growing like wildfire in our country. And one Gallup article, so they, they're, they're following trends of, you know, institutions, Congress, the, the presidency, the courts, religion, all they follow all these different institutions and how people feel about them. How much confidence do you have in them? And in one Gallup article, they said this, quote, confidence in higher education in the U.S. has decreased significantly since 2015, more so than for any other U.S. institution that Gallup measures. And so we're at, the nation looks at the colleges and says, they're brainwashing our kids. They're indoctrinating our kids into what, what's totally strange. It's, it's revolutionary, really. They're training them to hate everything that they've ever been taught. They're training them to undermine any religious foundations. They're training them to hate American history. And, and, and we're seeing that bear out in the statistics, which we'll talk about in a later episode But now America is looking at the educational institutions, both public schools and the universities and saying, no, I just, I don't trust them anymore. They are off the reservation and they've lost the confidence of the American people. And that's dangerous when people no longer have faith in the institutions that are foundational to society. And that can't continue long without big consequences. It's crazy. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. <laughs> kind of a wild ride. Yeah, it has been. It has been. And so, you know, the good news is, is you are starting to see a movement where the other side is beginning to wake up and wanting to found educational models to compensate for this. And private schools are growing and the homeschool movement is growing and people, and, the, and those have been swelling at the same time that the public schools are shrinking, obviously. But we need alternatives. Mm. You know, if we're going to recapture what was great, real wisdom, and not only governance, but life and how we train our kids, we are going to need new alternatives for education. You know, I'll close with this. Martin Luther in the 1500s, the person who launched the Reformation. Remember, this whole thing started with a fracture in the Catholic Church who used to have a monopoly on all this stuff. You know, it owned the governments and it owned the education systems. It kind of controlled the show. And then the Machiavelli and Luther both splintered out of the Catholic Church. I want you to hear Luther's warning that he gave back in that era. He says, I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. That feels prophetic. 
You know, this is going to sound controversial to say, but I do believe the universities have become a great gateway of hell itself. Mm. All kinds of wickedness have come out of the universities. And I would echo him, send your kids where the Holy Scriptures are going to be exalted. And if you have no other option but to send them to a public school, it is your calling, scripturally speaking, it is your calling to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's, that belongs to you no matter what. But be careful where what your students are exposed to. And so I don't think Luther's wrong there. And so as we wrap up this episode, let me tee up the next episode by saying, in the mid-19th century, two of history's most influential authors, Charles Darwin and Karl Marx, turned the world upside down and shook the American soul to its core. We'll learn about that in our next episode. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and that you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero, Warm Memories, and The Inspiration by Keys of Moon, as well as Farewell by Maxco Music. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.